If you don't think masks are cool, well, you know who wore a mask? Spider-Man. And how cool is Spider-Man? Seriously though, please wear a mask. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. We're answering some burning listener questions this week about the fixation on comparing games to other media like novels and movies, as well as what to make of fantasy races like orcs, elves, and Argonians. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Maddie Myers. We're back for another episode of Triple Click. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. And you know what? This isn't just another episode of Triple Click. This is... It's not? It's the 10th episode of Triple Click. Yes! It is our 10th anniversary. That's what that means, right? An anniversary is just... I think so, yeah. Yeah. We've been together for 10 years. Like a decade, but it's only 10 episodes. Sure, there's no like Latin in there or anything. It just means 10 of anything. So this is our 10th anniversary episode. (laughs) Happy 10th birthday to us. Yeah, happy birthday, guys. Yeah, It's very exciting. 2020 has really felt like 10 10 years. It has. Each week has felt like at least a year long, so this seems fair. A little like it's been 10 years since we started making this show. Um, if you've been with us that whole time from the beginning, all of you longtime listeners, yes. thank you so much. And if you want to support us making this show, as always, I will remind you that you can become a Maximum Fun member, which you can do by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. And that not only gets you the uh, the good feeling of helping us make this show possible. It <laughs> yes. also gets you access to Maximum Fun bonus content from all of the Maximum Fun podcasts, including Triple Click. Mm-hmm. And that Control means you will Beans get cast what? just went live. There will, there will be That's a new right. Beans cast that just went up um, this past Monday on the feed for the game Control that was pretty mm-hmm. fun Great to game. record. Cool Great beans game. cast. Fun beans cast, fun to talk about. And then, of course, the next one in July will be for The Last of Us 2, yes. which I actually just finished and we'll talk Ooh. about for my one more thing later. But um, I'm sure a lot of people are working their way but through. But we will not be and, spoiling uh, on this episode. No, 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 no. no. There will be Wait no beans spilled here. Only on the beans cast. Yep. Only beans on the beans cast. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. However, on this episode, we are going to be answering some burning questions. Yeah. Let's Yay. get to it, shall we? Um, we shall. Let's we jump shall. right in. So first of all, before we even start, we should say that to reach us, you can send all questions, comments, feedback, whatever, dog pictures, fan art of us. <laughs> we haven't gotten fan art in a while. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. No, please send it. Our profile pictures are fairly accurate representations of what we look like. <laughs> um, you can send that to tripleclick at maximumfun.org. Org. Um, mm-hmm. And we read every single email. We don't read every single one on the show, but we do read every single one. We do. Um, all right, let's start off. So a few people have asked the questions along this line that are basically, I want to support Black game developers, but I'm not sure where to start. Can you guys help out? Kirk, Maddie, what do you guys think? Let's answer this. Uh, uh, so I have, I have a real quick answer to this one. Cool. There's yes. a great website called blackgamedevs.com that is put together by Arthur Ward Jr., Kat Small, and Chris Algu. And it is just a database of black game devs and also some companies where black game devs work. And just all their Twitter handles and personal info. I really recommend just following a bunch of cool people on Twitter in general. Like This is true for black game devs are really... Any marginalized developers are just cool mm-hmm. people out there making sweet indie games who aren't getting that much regular press as much as we we all try as, as reporters to highlight everything, but it's impossible. So, you know, just diversify your social media feed and check out some cool projects. And this website is a good place to start. Yeah, cool. so we'll link that in show notes. And yeah, yes. check it out. There's a lot of good stuff on there. 
Um, mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Let's get to some um, other questions. Maddie, do you want to read this next one? Sure. So this email is from William, who writes, My question is, what do you think of the rhetorical move of elevating games with comparison to film or novels? I've been reading and watching some Last of Us Part Two reviews, and several have praised the game for its, quote, unquote, cinematic feel. I've also heard the game compared to novels. Are these comparisons useful, or is it a cheap way of elevating status? It seems to imply that games have to be more than games to be that good. Haven't deep, involved stories with chapters and complex characters been part of games for a long enough time to not shatter our impressions of the medium? Do we need to act like any game that succeeds at those things is more than a game? Do we give games like The Last of Us Part Two too much credit for their amazing production value and not spend enough time considering if what the game has to say is worth all that fancy presentation? <laughs> this <laughs> is such a good question. Such a good yeah. question because, like, the games, the insecurity of the video game industry and the I fact know. that the games industry has just been like like trying to emulate Hollywood has been one of the kind of bugbears of AAA games development for at least 20 years now and just like trying to recreate and also like critical reception and the way that we as critics cover games and try to deal with that insecurity fair or unfair about how people perceive what we're writing about yeah mm-hmm. i think i think for starters i mean i think for starters with this whole conversation i think games are game developers are told and believe that triple a game developers specifically mm-hmm. are told to believe that cinematic quality is like the benchmark for graphical fidelity and in order to make a game that costs uh that that reaches the millions and millions of peoples that the eas and activisions and sony's of the world want to reach you have to therefore spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars creating these cinematic cinematic graphics and making a game feel like you're there at the movie theater. And then, mm-hmm. yes, like you said, Maddie, like the critical coverage of like, like in, yeah. in the, some newspaper will be like, it feels like you're playing a movie. And that's just mm-hmm. been the story, the cycle for years and years now. And I really, I actually do think that it's kind of hurt the medium because there's so many other games and indie games and creative games that like, like challenge what a game can do. And I think just like relying on these same cinematic tropes has really kind of made for a stale a stale kind of stifling uh, uh, genre and medium I want to hear what Kirk thinks <laughs> I you know just I guess I, I do understand why the trend has gone this way so the way I look at it is kind of like movies used to be the super medium if that is a term, and I don't know if it is, but I'm making it up. But basically, <laughs> what does that mean? The or the or medium. I think a lot. So I obviously t- think a lot about music, and I think of music as an elemental medium, um, okay. and that that means that it is. It's like it is fundamentally just sound like you can really break it down to its elements of like rhythm and harmony but it's like very elemental kind Mm -hmm. of like how visual art like just very like the most basic visual art is kind of elemental to me too and i know this Mm -hmm. is like a rough whatever um taxonomy but it's just kind of how i think of it where movies movies are a super were the super medium that was dominant for the 20th century where it was like a combination of everything especially if you take something like West Side Story or like a movie musical where now you have like music and dance and visual Mm -hmm. art and costuming like fashion and And acting and performance and like all of the lighting and every aspect of that side of things yeah go on right and so I think because of that for a long time 
criticism and audience appreciation of films was just this super rich, complicated thing that was so fun and rewarding to talk about and to experience because you're getting to experience, like you can like a movie for so many different reasons, which is still true. You can be like, mm-hmm. I, I think the story is garbage, but it's so beautiful to look at that right. I love watching it. Or, you know, I think, yeah, it's like not really well directed and not that interesting, but I actually think there's a kernel there with the story or just this one performance does it for me, whatever. You, yeah, you the get performance, it. yeah. And so mm-hmm. that I think has been true for so long that movies have taken on this kind of outsized role in like the world of criticism just where people still watch movie reviews on YouTube and it's like still a really big thing where reading literary reviews or listening to music reviews or like reading music reviews is like way more niche like a lot smaller those fundamental art forms are actually a little bit diminished in the world Mm. of the super medium and Mm. now video games are the new super medium I think that's also pretty undeniable because they do they can do everything movies do but they also so add all these other elements, in particular interactivity. So it right. sort of makes sense that there would be this big push to take the existing super medium and be like, and now you can go there and like do that. Like that is exciting as hell. I mean, getting to star in your own novel, which you can do. I mean, gosh, I was recently playing like an Emily Short um, uh, visual novel or uh, interactive story. Um, yeah. or 80 Days is a good example of this, where yes. it's like you can be in a novel and that feels like this wonderful novel that you're reading. Um, and that's a really cool experience, but so much more often, and it's just so much more easily, you know, sort of hypeable to be like, yeah, but you could be, you could be <laughs> you John Wick, you know, you could like be <laughs> yeah. in that, yeah. in that yeah. movie. So I do understand why it's gone that way, and I guess it's limiting if you only view it that way. But it's also like pretty logical to me, I guess, when I think mm-hmm. of it on that axis. Well, yeah. it's limiting in the sense that it makes people think of like like games have to follow this specific direction, and they have to they have to have the cutscenes, and they have to have the certain camera angles and it, mm-hmm. it just feels like it's it's driven storytelling and games towards a way that it didn't really have to go where like the game is just yelling everything at your face all the time <laughs> um, yeah and like inter- storytelling in games could be so much more and we've already seen like so many games that try to do so much more with storytelling but they're not those like big triple a like we want to be the movies type games mm-hmm. I feel like the other side of that though is what if games were influenced by more kinds of movies and books mm. and music <laughs> and so on. Like, I think somewhere. that's what my actual answer to this question is, is that mm-hmm. I think the comparisons are great and fine. And I love comparing pieces of media like across the spectrum because sometimes the comparison serves some value to you as a critic For in sure. order to say it feels like this or does something very similar to this other piece of art. But I think really what your issue is, Jason, is the fact that games are trying to emulate like a very specific kind of action movie that means what we mean when we say the word cinematic, that is just like a word that has been flattened out into a specific (laughs) kind of popcorn movie, like Star Wars, basically. And that's fine. And it's very cool when a video game feels as good as watching A New Hope does. But there are also so many other kinds of movies and kinds of music and kinds of books. And so... Really, when I see those comparisons, usually my first thought is, I wish more people would watch more (laughs) movies and read more (laughs) books. And that's why I think, like, what is the Citizen Kane of games is, like, still a joke that we all tell to each other as critics all the time is because, like, 
it's absurd that Citizen Kane is still even the example there. Like, what? <laughs> right, I don't right. know. Like, what's the funny games of games? Like, what's the Little Mermaid <laughs> of games? Like, we could just go on all day and come up with weird examples. Oh God, I'm I'm resisting the urge to make a joke here. That <laughs> I'm just thinking about the funny games of games. Jesus, Maddie, yeah. you want to play the funny games of games? <laughs> I think it's The Last of Us Part Two. I don't know. Gita and I were talking about it, and she was comparing The Last of Us Part Two to funny games, and I was like, I don't. Mm-hmm. Hate that honestly, yeah, but no, anyway, there's something to I'm, that. I'm saying I feel like sometimes the comparisons can be very interesting. Yeah, and- I think that. So I think that a thing William is talking about is like the sense of inferiority, which Jason yeah. you alluded to too. Is yes. that like that that a movie a game needs to be elevated to a movie's mm-hmm. level, or in the case of The Last of Us Two, to a novel's level because of right. the way that it tells its story out of order and it's got a lot of characters and it's and it is kind of like a complicated emotionally story, like an emotionally mm-hmm. complicated story. You could compare it to a novel. Which which is something people also do with TV. Take The Wire, our beloved The Wire. Of course. Frequently people will be like, this really feels like a novel because of the way that it unfolds. It moves much and more slowly. And you compared it to a game, Kirk, on, on split screen or possibly this show. Who can say? Who can remember? <laughs> That's true. Those systemic game like uh, qualities. And I think that then it does cut the other way around where now you'll see movies and you'll say, well, actually, this is using some interesting ideas from the world mm-hmm. of games and design ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming a little more cyclical. I think... When I see a critic elevating a game by saying that it feels like a movie in a just purely, like, that's just purely positive, it feels Mm -hmm. like playing a movie. It just is a kind of an immature criticism at this point or observation. Like, okay, so what? A lot of these games feel like interactive movies. Like, what's really your point? Yeah, Mm -hmm. like, which movie and why? Right, right, right. (laughs) That's a more interesting question than just it feels like a movie. Like, that doesn't really say enough, you know? And I yeah. will, this will be something I'll, I'll maybe talk about a little more when I give my sort of some spoiler-free final thoughts on The Last of Us 2, but yeah. that mo- or that game really is feels like a movie in a lot of ways in that you're just watching actors emote and like trying to determine what the performance is trying to tell you. There's some long cutscenes in that game. Right, a lot of cutscenes. <laughs> and it's just not, it's not telling stories actually through gameplay in the way right. that a lot of games have become very good at. And as a result, it is a very like quote unquote cinematic game. It's a very movie influenced <laughs> game or The Walking yes. Dead. It just really feels like The Walking Dead to me. And mm-hmm. so there are, those kinds of games exist, but like you've both alluded to a lot of other kinds of games exist as well and i'm increasingly like enamored of all these different types of games also like to the thing you were saying maddie about um just watching different kinds of stuff you don't even have to go that far outside of just like (laughs) is it fantasy or is it you know military shooting people um or i guess is it sci-fi those are like the three genres um (laughs) to to get there because three genres we we were just talking about i used to joke that it would be the the two genres are fantasy and sci-fi yeah, uh-huh. I think they are, right? What else but, um, is there? I guess there's also, like, military. <laughs> also the three genders. <laughs> sort of, I'm not going to create this off, but I do want to say that I was thinking about the other day, I think on our Control show, which is actually the point I'm going to make is about Control, so I'm kind of yeah. spoiling that. But um, on our Control show, we were talking about, I think, Maddie, you said that you go on quests in that game. And then I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. what games do you go on quests on versus missions? Because in some right. games, they're missions. I think they're called missions in Control, so, like, I don't know why I decided to call them quests. Oh, no, no. 
no, right. That was what made me think it. Is I was yeah, like, that, well, it's sci-fi, sci-fi, and and military games are missions. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so my the, the thing I came up with for was, Horizon. I guess Horizon has quests, and that's like a sci-fi-ish game. Well, so the the thing I came up with was in games where you have a gun, you get missions, and in games where you have a sword, you get quests. That's good. <laughs> and I just started that laughing because I was like, good. here we are again with the two genres. But wait, but Cyberpunk twenty seven seven has guns and swords, and you get quests. Ooh. So yeah. oh, you get quests in that game, really? I think. Well, they talk about it. So CD Projekt Red has a quest design team. You get jobs. So I guess mm. technically, yeah, yeah maybe do you get jobs. jobs. Do you get gigs? Oh, that's another. That's a, a new gig. Yeah, a jobs. gig would be good. I think we need to expand the vocabulary. Anyways, our tasks, that's a side track. tasks could be <laughs> that's tasks. A, that's a sidetrack. So to circle to reel it back into what I was saying uh-huh. um, really, is really is that. Really the sort of the the genre thing is you can go just a little ways outside and blow everyone away like control did where control is like totally drawing from like x files twin mm-hmm. peaks like that kind of weird vibe and that felt so fresh playing it it's like it's yeah. not just a post-apocalyptic world or like a military shooter or whatever mm-hmm. sci-fi and um and just doing just going a little ways afield makes a huge difference mm-hmm. totally. i think one of the problems of this whole comparison is that it like kind of it it treats games as i think william wrote that like yeah william wrote that like games have obviously had good deep stories for so long now that like making the comparison of like oh the story is as good as a movie is kind of like yeah. feels kind of puerile at this and it's point it's like again it depends on the movie there's plenty of terrible movies <laughs> but the like, point what? the point that i'm making is that it's like i don't even think i think that we the discourse the criticism whatever has to go beyond just comparing the story to story because it's like comparing apples and bowling balls it's like one is a story that is interactive and another is a story that you're watching unfold for two hours and if mm-hmm. anything i think we should be like thinking about more things that like that kind of play a part in a story of a video game and here's last of us 2 is actually a perfect example because i'm in probably in the second half of that game and i'm already feeling like it's starting to drag and for some reason, the the fact that like an, a AAA game has to be 40 hours long or 30 hours long or whatever has become part of like the accepted canon for video games. And we don't spend enough time thinking or talking about, I don't think, and by we, I just mean the discourse as a whole, the criticism right, critics, as a whole. Yeah. Um, don't spend enough time talking about like, does this game really need yet another like friggin' scene where you have to crawl around and shoot zombies for a while before you get to the next cutscene? And we don't talk enough about pacing. And I think that fundamentally is where movies have just are still like way ahead of games is pacing yeah because they have um, to be yeah yeah, yeah. Right. well so that's and and i think that's such an important part of storytelling quality that you can't even you really can't compare the two you just have to think of like is this game's pacing working and ask that and that's maybe uh, that that might be a conversation that critics should be having oh yeah i mean i've been comparing comparing the last of us part two to a television season a lot mm-hmm. just colloquially and i feel like that comparison works a lot better for that game not because it's episodic but just because I mean it probably helps that Haley Gross wrote for Westworld and I interviewed her and she told me she wrote the game as though she was writing a season of television so I am also biased by the fact that one of the writers of the game (laughs) told me she wrote it as though it were that but I also think a lot of other games can be viewed through that lens for better or worse and I mean there's certainly times when I'm watching a season of television and I'm like this feels like they just needed eight episodes or 15 (laughs) episodes And, and games can suffer from that problem too so maybe we should just be comparing games to TV more, I guess is my point. It's like, funny, you know, it's funny that that's kind of like, there was a period of time, Alan Wake and Mass Effect 2, sort of in that mm-hmm. period of time around 2010 ish or so 
um, in that ballpark anyways, where like a lot of games felt episodic. And that was also when Telltale's episodic thing was like really taking yeah, off. Yeah, The Walking Dead, yeah. A lot of people were launching episodic games. That's still going on, but I don't feel like there's quite as much excitement around it anymore. I guess mm-hmm. because there have been so many big successes like God of War or I'm sure The Last of Us 2 seems like it's going to be successful. Like oh, of yeah. these, the return to the big long game where you play for a while and then you get a big cutscene and then you play a little while and it could be broken into seasons but of course it wouldn't be it's because not, it's being yeah. sold at full price well i think maybe that compare that that like attempt to translate tv to games doesn't really work or maybe at least it doesn't work for me maybe because it's too literal as opposed to a game that is like well taking it too literally doesn't work yeah well yeah. well it feels like it's no i for me the structure of that doesn't work like i, I always mm-hmm. just wind up waiting for all the episodes to come out as opposed mm. to like and you i do think that with that's, tv though um, no, not all, not, not always, not for shows I care about. Um, yeah, yeah. and I think that's that because of that, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And I think that games really have this ability to actually do more than that. And it's kind of like, it feels like it's a waste almost to take that episodic view as right. opposed to like, like almost like a hitman approach or like so many other potential approaches where like you have a world that's expanding with new stuff and you're in the same world, but like, Hey, there's mm-hmm. a new mission over here and I can go check that out. Or like so many yeah. other potential ideas that that you could do with games that you could never do with TV as far as like delivering stories and um, exploring the world. There's a clear thing here that I think about a lot, especially the kinds of games that I've gotten more into over the last 10 years. And that's just that games can tell a totally different kind of story. Mm -hmm. And while when a game is telling a story that is in some ways novelistic, that's a helpful comparison to make if you're trying to eliminate a point about it or as a player just understand it or, you know, using the language of cinema in the same ways, especially with like cutscenes, which are basically just movies. There are so (laughs) many ways that games do things on their own that you just can't do elsewhere. I mean, the best stories in games, this is a cliche, but like the time that you fought a boss a hundred times in Dark Souls or whatever and then came up with some crazy strategy and like pulled it out at the last minute when you both didn't have any health left and like or the game glitched and you won on an impossible way. I don't know. I think about Jason you um, knocking the demon, what's his name, the Taurus demon off the bridge in Dark Souls on a stream and like just that story was an amazing story. Right, the stories we tell outside of games. Yeah, that's a whole Mm -hmm. big part of video game story. But in games themselves, some of the best stories I think at least for me are the the stories of exploration and finding things and being kind of yeah. led by the designer mm-hmm. to follow the story. I mean, Return of the Oberdin comes to mind as like one of my favorite stories in games. Yeah, or even that's Outer Wilds, which we all obsessed oh, over yeah. last year. It's a game that doesn't have any cinematic qualities to it. Not there are no cutscenes. Other no, than like, you walking around and just right. enjoying the world and being right. your own it's pretty. It's person. pretty, but there's nothing cinematic about it. But it's this phenomenal story and it's a story that you kind of uncover in this really unique, like non-linear way that I don't think uh movies could ever do and i think that's where where games are kind of like especially triple a games that's that's what's wasted for me it's not even maddie to your point earlier it's not even just that everyone's trying to be the last the the star wars game or whatever the star wars movie it's more that everyone's trying to recreate a certain type of storytelling that's like the cutscene like like Mm -hmm. action cutscene action and that and like linear very linear storytelling and that to me seems like a waste like imagine if a triple a game like tried to do like outer wilds completely non linear way yeah like a, like outer wilds and and told this w- wacky story i don't know i don't know if it's possible but 
I do to to put things on a slightly optimistic note. Um, I do think that that sort of thing will turn up more, mm-hmm. just because I look at The Last of Us Two and the way that that game has all this stuff from like Gone Home and sort of yeah, yeah more, totally. you know, it has these. They've been increasingly adding plays with perspectives, which is pretty cool. And Naughty Dog mm-hmm. isn't the only studio doing this. A lot of AAA games now will really embrace these long, you know, narrative sections where you're just walking around looking at stuff and talking to people. And mm-hmm. that would have been revolutionary like ten years ago. That we were oh. people were saying the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I wish there were just more time to hang out with characters. I remember mm-hmm. in Uncharted Two, there's the sequence where like Nate arrives in this Tibetan village and you just walk through it and you can like kick a soccer ball with a kid. And I remember at the time there were people like writing blog posts being like, "This, this is so cool" because it was <laughs> that was before any of those games had come out. So yeah. I could see that sort of game design making its way into more like really big budget, big team games over the next mm-hmm. ten years. Mm-hmm. And yeah. A thing I just thought about when you mentioned um, Outer Wilds as an example is just when I've seen a great movie that I really love, like a movie that I just can't really live in. This is a weird example, but actually the Kira Knightley remake of Pride and Prejudice. It's like this <laughs> it, extremely it <laughs> it's and it's so beautiful. Like that movie, yes. it like is really kind of earthy and natural and it just the piano soundtrack and the light filtering through the leaves. There mm-hmm. are things when I think about that movie I haven't seen it in a long time, but it just exists in my mind in a certain way. Like, yeah. it, t- it takes me to a certain place. And games do that, too. And I think about, I mean, a Souls game is like that. I think about places in Bloodborne, and it gives me that same kind of feeling. And that is something that, I mean, all good art does, I guess. And I'm more interested in conversations that kind of try to nail down that feeling and, mm-hmm. like, z- take it out to be, a you know, it's applicable to anything and any great art will take you there rather than like getting so caught up in like the specifics of the medium and being like, the mechanics oh yeah, of it, they got yeah. the lens flare right. There's chromatic aberration <laughs> in this game. So it looks like it's shot on a film. You know, that stuff is much less interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. Kirk, you want to read this next one? Sure. This comes from Clover. Clover writes, Hey, I love the show. Your discussion about cops in video games as well as real-world events over the past couple of weeks has gotten me thinking about race in video games and how allegories for race can go wrong. Games like Detroit Become Human come to mind, but also games like The Witcher, where elves are an oppressed minority. While it can be helpful to simplify serious, complicated topics so they're easier for a wider audience to consider, it can be incredibly harmful and can wind up reinforcing prejudices instead. This can be very problematic, but is every fantasy race an allegory for a minority, or are some fantasy race is just a fantasy race? Is it even possible to separate video games from reality when race becomes a major part of the story? You touched on this in last week's episode while discussing Resident Evil's depiction of minorities as zombies and how obviously racist it was. I agree, and in fact, I think it's a very important conversation to have right now. I hope this isn't an out-of-line question to ask. I honestly want to know if my love of orcs and Argonians is problematic or not. Aww. <laughs> I'm not hmm. sure that's an easy binary question to answer, unfortunately, right. true for a lot of these things right i mean you can say i i did have an initial response to this which is i don't know if you two saw this news but uh, wizards of the coast is actually changing a lot of its dungeons and dragons Mm -hmm. characters and the way that that it describes those characters for Mm -hmm. this exact reason like for example like orcs are often described in those books as like lusting for battle and so on and like the drow are described as evil and that's just how those character archetypes fantasy races have been described and i mean this has Mm -hmm. been a debate in fandom for as long as I can remember, 
because people will talk about how Tolkien conceived of a lot of these these fantasy races and that's impacted Dungeons and Dragons and so many other fantasy games mm-hmm. that we have all played and fantasy pieces of media and just that those permutations of those fantasy races like you can try to take away some of the implications of them, but it is, I would say it's almost impossible to do that. I fall on the line of thinking that those original, that original intent of fearing the other, it's kind of like how whenever you adapt like something from Lovecraft, it's always going yep. to include some of his fantasy racism as well, because like so much of his work was rooted in his fear of the other that like you need to completely rethink those stories in order to have it change and that's always possible but if you're Mm -hmm. just doing a one-to-one recreation i think i don't know i think you can (laughs) fall into some serious pitfalls in terms of those stereotypes well i think that i think with dnd i think that it was the exact opposite problem which is that people it seemed like an allegory even though i don't think it was intended to be maybe tolkien intended for for orcs to be an allegory i mean we have have no way of asking him now yeah but but i'm saying in dungeons and dragons i mean the people are at wizards of the coast right now and like have been like updating these games and books for the past few years, I don't think it occurred to any of them that like, oh yes, orcs are an allegory for black people or anything like that. I think it's more that people saw that stuff and thought like, oh, this uh, this like encourages harmful racist stereotypes and we should change it. Or confirms my own racist ideologies that I have and I'm going to play the game this way. But yeah. I think what Clover is talking about is more the opposite where the, in the where the creators of something intend to make it a racial stereotype or not a right. racial stereotype but an allegory for a race. And I think like the Witcher or like Dragon Age came to mind as a yeah. game where like the elves are this this oppressed group and, and insert your own like stand in for oppression here. Um, or obviously Detroit Become Human, which we I haven't even played, but that seems like such a clumsy <laughs> stab at it that it's not even right. really worth getting into. But I actually think, I, I, I think that there is room for allegories for race. And I'll say this as... I don't want to speak about uh, uh, allegories for black people or other minorities. So I will speak for my own minority, which is like, I can totally see a story working that is like an allegory for Judaism and Jewishness. And like, I don't know, I would play a game that is like a fantasy version of Jewish people and in a ghetto being persecuted, like being pogromed or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. I can totally see that working as long as you avoid sticking in the stereotypes. Like, you don't give them all like Harry Potter or uh, uh, like the goblin hook noses and you know make them all bankers you just make them into people who happen to be oppressed by like humans or whatever you make them elves who are oppressed by humans and then the you you tell a story involving that world um i think as long as it's handled well and written by jewish people i think it could be done really well um and I, yeah. I i kind of i don't see why that wouldn't also be the case for other races i think the most important thing is like if you're going to tell a story that's an allegory for a minority you need that minority in the writer's room like I making agree. up if not mm-hmm. if not the bulk of the writer's room like at least 50 percent of the writer's room there. yeah i really agree with that and I, kirk i will let you talk but i want to quickly say that like Re-Detroit Become Human, which is a story that sort of uses robots as an allegory for a variety of oppressed minorities. I would say slavery is one of the allegories in that game, but also the Holocaust. I feel like it's not that that's impossible because like the collected works of Janelle Monet also use robots right. as an allegory for oppression in ways example. that I think are pretty clever and interesting and speak to a lot of people. And she like has spoken about being a queer person and being a black person and like 
how that influences her work. And that's very clear to see. So it's not like you can't do a story where somebody is a robot and that means something to them. And it like says something about the experiences that they've had. Like there was a version of Detroit Become Human that was cool and good. And it's just too bad they didn't hire Janelle to write it, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 kind of a shame. But yeah. Yeah, I think so. I have a couple thoughts on this, I guess. One is that the allegory where it's not racial, but you're talking about things that in the real world are drawn along racial lines can work yeah. great. Like that can be a really good place for creativity. Like you said, if you're if you're making a, something that's going to be a metaphor for a certain type of oppression, you definitely want someone or writers and people to be speaking from experience and like understanding it. You know, that's that's going to be better. But, you know, I'm thinking of like. I haven't seen Pleasantville in a long time, but like that movie is playing with this idea, at least, of like people being in color versus people being in black and white. And mm-hmm. it's not actually about race at all, even though it really, I, re- I do remember like it, like, it very clumsily also, gets into yeah. like, you know, no <laughs> coloreds allowed here and stuff. And like, which is like extremely clumsy and drawing, it's like hitting you over the head with it. But that's mm-hmm. the sort of imaginative approach that obviously robots is like the really easy one that any video game writer would go to. But you can mm-hmm. Come up with stuff like that that handled correctly and written by the right people could be really great. I think anytime the actual race of the character is involved, it's already on shakier ground. The more I've thought about it, this isn't something, you know, this is something I'm still thinking about and like especially recently thinking about. But the Tolkien thing is a great example where that everything is kind of based on these archetypes that he built. A lot of them are, yeah, very much like the dark race from the East, you know, coming mm-hmm. to like destroy our fine, very clearly like, yeah. you know, Anglo-Saxon European. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole nother. Yeah, well, yeah. that was in the 1940s. So it's right. like. I, no, right. But all of these races were kind of built on that you know, on that fundamental sort of starting point. Framework, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at, I mean, you can make it explicit and it can totally not work. Take, for example, the terrible Netflix movie Bright, which tries to, like, (laughs) literally make orcs into racial minorities and, like, modern day LA and then tell a story about it and it's awful and it's just unwatchable. (laughs) So making it specific doesn't always work, but keeping it vague also doesn't always work. And thinking about, like, The Witcher, you know, the way that, that elves and dwarves are oppressed in those games... I remember there was this ad or something. It was like, this game deals with real world things like war, racism, and something else. And people kind of, that's sticking in the craw of some people. They're saying like, is this really dealing with racism? Or is it just (laughs) like in this world, people don't Mm. like elves? And it's kind of just any time, like Clover mentions Argonians, just any time, like in a character creation tool, you're picking a race and it has intrinsic qualities, like it has higher strength or more dexterity. You're already talking about these things that maybe just aren't, aren't true like that that races are somehow different or if you make a game where they are true then what are you actually implying by that and is your game going to interrogate Mm. what that would mean because it's not true in real life but there are people who think that it is true so what are you going to do with that well so i think this is this is it's really interesting territory because when a fantasy world says race it's saying something different than what we talk about when we talk about race we're really talking about ethnicity right and like that's how we use the word race is to talk about humans different variations on humans that's a very good point when a fantasy world says race it's almost like they should think of a different they mean like species yeah Yeah. they should be saying species because like in our world if you were born as an alligator you would have different traits than of yeah because you'd be a different species right so like i think the the thinking of it as race like we're kind of using bad terminology and that's the fundamental problem here 
Yeah. Right, though, thinking about the Elder Scrolls, for example, there are, like, Bretons and, right, and, like, Nords. Like, there oh, are yeah. races no, that are, I, I, that are yes. human ethnicities. So, I know, I know, what you're saying, that's actually a very important distinction. Because Argonians and Khajiit are, like, cat people and yeah. lizard people. Like, yeah. they're a different species, essentially, <laughs> even though they're sentient and intelligent and have humanity. Well, so, I actually, I think D&D is actually the, the good example of a bad way to do this. Because in D&D, everybody is humanoid, so it almost feels like yeah. race is, like, the correct word for that. Because the orcs are like humanoid they happen to be green and like be a little bit stronger and more powerful but like the fact that they're Mm -hmm. an evil race bred to be evil like that is where you get into clumsy territory if they were a race of like talking cats like Khajiit then you would be able I think you can look at it a little bit more like okay this is a completely different like genealogy and it's not like a type of human but like people are always going to want to play as those characters and then of course they're going to want to see those characters as being similar to human beings and like having all the complaints complexities of humans so pretty much no matter what you're gonna end up back at square one where you're like well i guess i'm supposed to be playing as like an inherently evil guy Mm -hmm. but i don't want to play him that way i want to play him as like a multifaceted guy who's actually like fighting on behalf of his marginalized community because that's a more interesting story to me and like because that's possible within DD, they have to do what they've done here which i think was the right move which is just acknowledging it and being like we're gonna stop describing all of these certain races as having inherent personality traits that's the thing yes yeah i think that's the way to go because no one is playing the game this way and anyone who is playing the game that way should stop because it it's bad and literally all you have to do is instead of saying khajiit are born stealthy you just add another variable and it's like your your type of like play style or whatever you call it like affinity or background or instinct yeah, you could say, like, culturally, Khajiit pride right. people who are very good at stealth, and they have, mm-hmm. like, developed all of these techniques within their culture to be spies. Right, and so, so therefore, well, yeah, I, although then you get into culturally orc or I savage know, and brutal, but, then you get into problems. But then problems you introduce also. a cool Khajiit character who's really bad at stealth and really wants to be a warrior, yes, and you tell yes. their story. What I, I like was, the idea of is more character, playable characters that are not It is great. Playing as a cat rules. <laughs> talking cat. I think yeah. they're playing as a Hanar in Mass Effect. I'm talking like not humanoid at oh, all. Because yeah. the Khajiit just have cat heads. I want to play like a walking jellyfish that has <laughs> guns and shoots people. That's that's, <laughs> that's where I think we yeah. need to go. I mean, yeah, look, I, I don't think anyone's really taking offense to this idea of like a cat race that happens to be more stealthy than humans. I think it's when no, when you get into no, territory not. that like feels like it's reflecting human stereotypes in, in nasty ways, such yeah. as the orcs being like a savage race. That's when you get mm-hmm. into trouble. And especially if you're not like if you're not if if you're using that in a satirical way or like to prove a point about how this is bad to think of things that way then maybe you can get away with it but if it's just like part of your game is that one race happens to like have all these stereotypical qualities that humans think of as like black people in real life and have used that as like a, a, an offensive stereotype in real life then you get into trouble yeah hmm. yeah and I feel like it's way easier to notice if you're doing that if you hired some black people to help mm-hmm. you out with your game. Just yeah. a just a small note. Fundamentally, <laughs> it always comes down to like you need more writers of like different backgrounds and ethnicities yeah. in the writer room, and like that is the solution to so many problems. And man, the the thing everybody's talking about these days is Watchmen and how prescient that was yeah. and how good it is. And Absolutely. I think the fundamental reason for that is that they had like this super diverse writers room. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that is an example, like a good counter example to Bright, of going pretty <laughs> yeah. explicit with it, of like 
to being like, no, we're going to actually talk about all the things explicitly. And yep. because, I mean, it was a diverse writer's room and a really good writer's room. <laughs> yeah. They made an amazing show that's talented. like super about the things it's about and is very important and worth watching. Everyone go watch Watchmen. I guess that's yeah. the, that's a good note to, end <laughs> to, to answer Clover's, to answer Clover's question is, 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 uh, their love for orcs and Argonians problematic. I don't nah. know. I, I don't think so. I think it's, it's <laughs> fine. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I think it's fine. Yeah, more people should love orcs. Yeah, yeah. Orcs are great. And also Ar- Argonians are like lizard people. So I don't, I don't think that's. Argonians yeah. are the best. I've definitely come around on Argonians and in, in, uh, when I, in, in 25 years, when we play the next Elder Scrolls game, I might play as an Argonian. Oh man. Great. I'm so excited. All right. Why don't we take a break and then we'll be back for one more thing. I started listening to Ono, Ross, and Carrie shortly after I broke my arm, and the doctor had told me I'd never walk again. I couldn't get my book started. I was lost, honestly. I knew it was time to make a change. There's something about Ono, Ross, and Carrie that you just can't get anywhere else. They're thought leaders, discoverers, founders. I'd call them heroes. Ross and Carrie don't just report on French science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. They take part themselves. They show up so you don't have to but you might find that you want to. My arm is better. I can walk again. I wrote an entire book this weekend. It's terrible, but I did it. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Thank Thank you, Ross Ross and Carrie. Ona Ross and Carrie is just a podcast. It doesn't do anything. It's just sounds you listen to in your ears. All these people are made up. Goodbye. One, two, one, two, three. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors and... Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday. Right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. And we are back, and it is now time for that section we all love called One More Thing, where we each talk (laughs) about one more thing. Um, Maddie, why don't you go first? Sure. So this isn't a game, except that it is a game we all played in our living room as children. (laughs) I watched The Floor is Lava on Netflix. I thought it was really wonderful and stupid, and I just want to recommend it. So it it is a reality competition show wherein contestants, usually in groups of three, although sometimes they do groups of two, have to navigate a room. The floor of the room is covered in water, fairly deep water that's been dyed red, and probably (laughs) there's corn syrup in it to make it like kind of sludgy looking Mm -hmm. and they cannot touch the lava and it's super hard to navigate these rooms and they have to like usually solve a series of puzzles in order to do it so it's sort of like legends of the hidden temple e in terms of its structure Mm. people remember that show from when they were kids depending on if they're my age or not and it's nothing nothing of value happens on this show there's no (laughs) other plot to it there's nothing else that occurs it is truly just watching people try to get across a room and failing or 
succeeding and you are so excited that they've succeeded. And I would say the most important part of it is that they are only competing for $10,000, which is like enough money when split between three people after taxes that it's like kind of a lot of money, but it's not so much money that they're not willing to laugh at themselves and be good sports about it when they lose. And I feel like like it's like (laughs) the perfect mix of high stakes and low stakes and like nobody ever gets seriously injured. I don't know. It's really great. And it's very interesting. A refreshing watch. The thing about the money is interesting. I've always noticed like on the Great British Bake Off that they don't compete for money. There's no money involved there. Yeah, it helps a lot. Right. And there's so much more kind of camaraderie and everyone. Like you want to win. You want to be the best baker, but there's no money. And it does kind of significantly change the stakes. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Like Mm. if the floor is lava, if you won a million dollars, it would be horrible to watch. Like it would be so stressful. And you'd be (laughs) like, oh my God, like they need the money really bad and like they're going to fall. And you'd be like freaking out. But because, you know, it's not that much money, but it's like enough money that you're really happy Mm -hmm. for them when they make it and you really want them to get it. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know. It's perfect. It's a great show. Um, (laughs) That makes me want to watch it. Let me go next because I think Kirk's will be a little bit of a longer discussion. I agree. Um, Go for it. My wife and I have been watching. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Have, have either of you guys watched this show? Oh, absolutely. At the time, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, course. at the time, you say, but it's like still making new seasons. Like I know, but I, I did fall off. You the stopped watching. Okay. Yeah, I haven't point. watched in a little while. So, yeah. yeah, my wife and I have been going through the entire thing. And wow. man, it is hilarious. It is so ridiculous and out of control. One of the most classic shows about terrible people to ever is, be made, I think. It is yeah. straight yeah. up. But, but I, I think what ultimately makes it work is that the terrible people always, always gets what, get, get what's coming to them. <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in contrast to like, I don't know, Entourage, where the terrible people are always winning. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot sure. of shows where the terrible people win. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, um, I think Always Sunny, it's fun to watch these people because they're always just like making complete asses out of themselves and embarrassing mm-hmm. themselves but yep. like some of the situations they get into are so ridiculous like my wife and I just watched this episode where they were at the restaurant and like they were all at different tables and like like trying to like play these games against each other these malicious games <laughs> where like like one table they they uh, have um, it was Mac and Dennis and they didn't want to say hi to uh, Charlie and Frank until Charlie and Frank said hi to them so they kept sab- <laughs> trying to sabotage one another or like send each other wine as like a passive aggressive <laughs> Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. There's so many good episodes of this, so many ridiculous stories. I really enjoy it. And also, the music in it sounds a lot like Dragon Quest music, and I can't get that out of <laughs> oh, my head. Funny, like that and ring, think, ring. Yeah, yeah, anyone who, who if you go and like listen to it on YouTube or something and then play it near like Dragon Quest Eight <laughs> music or something, you will hear that they are exactly the same. I, I don't know if I'm the first person to make this observation. but Yeah, when when is Kurt going to do a deep analysis of the, yeah, it's the comparison of the like <laughs> schmaltz music from It's Always Sunny? I've always yeah. liked that contrast of the super schmaltzy music with these extremely acerbic characters. Yeah. Like, well, it's, it's very great. Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think Curb mm-hmm. is the one yes. that started that that yeah. trend. Um, and it's very fun. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I just really, I think we just hit season nine. I think, I feel like it Whoa. hit a new level. Wow. Well, they're each only 10 episodes and hey, we're well, all trapped at home. <laughs> look, no, I'm not <laughs> no judging judgment. you at all. I watched like all of Curb Your Enthusiasm in like a few weeks, like a couple months ago. So we're all having a time. Each season is like 10 episodes and they're each like 25 minutes yeah, long. Yeah. So it's, it's actually watchable. pretty easy to get through all of For it. Sure. Especially. Oh, yeah. um, but yeah, no, we're on season nine and um, it's uh, around season seven. It really just like hits this level of like, like they really figured out what they were doing and just got nonstop 
ridiculous episodes. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah. So Kirk, what is your yes. one more thing? He's playing a video game. Well, I'm now great. not playing a video game. I just stopped playing it. I just stopped playing The Last of Us Two because I finished it. And given that we just did an episode last week, thank you. Um, talking about it, I figured I'd share some more thoughts on the game, though I'm still definitely chewing on what I think of it. Yeah. Kirk from the future here as I edit this episode. I know some people are still sensitive about The Last of Us 2 spoilers, so I thought I would drop a little warning in here just to say that I actually don't really spoil anything specific when I talk about it here. Um, there were more spoilers in last week's uh, triple play on the game. I do talk a little bit about themes and characters and stuff, so if you're totally looking to avoid spoilers still, you might as well just skip to the end. This is the last thing that we talk about on this episode, but not really a whole lot of beans spilled in this conversation. Just wanted to give you all a heads up. Okay, back to the episode bing mm-hmm. but um it's been nice being done with it for a number of reasons <laughs> partly because okay. it is a pretty grueling and intense game and uh, now i can just play other less grueling and less intense things probably because i can go read what so many people have written maddie i really liked your review a lot um oh, i you. read i liked joshua rivera's review too i did too um i liked riley's review i liked liked a lot of views where is that tell people where that I that, believe it said are. Vulture. We can link all these. Yeah, he wrote for Vulture and then Riley reviewed it for Kotaku. Mm-hmm. These are all ex-Kotaku or Kotaku people, which is cool. <laughs> that there's well, like you could go read Rob fam. Zappi's review. Oh, wait, that's no, true. he also worked for Kotaku. Never mind. I, I did not realize true. I was saying that. that We're just that sort of true. spreading, spreading just writers to I the world. I feel like he freelance. I don't know if he, he did. was a He was a contractor, so you can decide whether or not you think that Whether or not that counts. Well, yes, he wrote a good review as well. So it's been cool reading it. There's a lot more there. I think there's just going to be like a really robust discussion of so many aspects of this game of like god i mean you could go just down any one vector which we will do in our we beans will. cast we will do and i'm sure we'll do in future you know in future um one more things as well yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I have to uh, like when it, you so. finish jason i'll be curious yeah. what you think but yeah i think overall i think it's a really ambitious and really bold game mm. i liked things about it i was a little let down by a lot of stuff Overall, like now that I've played the entire thing, like looking back at just the way the story was structured, the way the characters they developed, the relationships they developed and didn't develop, it's tough because this game is like, Maddie, I think you described it as it's so close to something that you really, really, really wanted. Which I think always hurts me more Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I when it's so close to being the thing I want it to be, and then it isn't that, and I'm like, oh, but just just move this here and put this here, and then you've you've got it. You're so close. But anyway, I'm so curious to to know what you guys. Once we can spoil it, yeah. You gotta beat it, man. <laughs> Once I finish it. I mean, and I gotta say, like, this game, I, d- I think this game is, like, if you're interested in video games and storytelling, it's worth playing, for sure. Yeah, like, I agree. It, I agree. Um, and if like, you want to participate a- in these infuriating conversations, which I'm sure many yeah. of our listeners do, it's worth playing just for that. I mean, heck, that was for why sure. I played the first one, even though I wasn't sure I'd like it. I was like, I just want to get <laughs> right. in on this. So, Kirk, last week you were saying that you were pretty into it. Are you saying that yeah. the second half of the game kind of soured you more on it? No, it no, no, no. And no, not... I want to push back on both of those characterizations. <laughs> I was saying that I thought that it was a, a worthy endeavor, like that it was this like very confident, very well-made, and very like clear about what it was trying to be work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true throughout. Like I, I, And I actually... There's one line of critique, and I'm not... I've seen it in a few different places that I don't agree with, and that's that the game is doing the fake-out thing where... It reveals to you that you were a monster all along because it recontextualizes some of what you've done. This game does recontextualize some of what you've done, and it's like in a very ambitious, big way. 
But I actually didn't feel like it was doing what Spec Ops and Hotline Miami did, which is something I said last week as a like, those games exist, so why does this game exist? It's, right. it's not doing that because it is actually all of a piece. It's It was clear to me from the beginning that everything I was doing was horrible. And yes. then I just got a lot more information about the horrible things I was doing. There is a critique in there of just like, why did we need all that information to know? Did I need 27 hours for that message? And that I think is totally fair. But in terms of the just like, this isn't a game that's like doing the whole ludonarrative dissonance. Oh, you thought you were shooting bad guys, but it's really Ender's game and you were killing innocent civilians. Like, it's not that and it's not trying to be that. Like, it's very clear about what it is. I actually really liked the piece that Chris Plant wrote for Polygon about how this game is like the end game of ludonarrative dissonance because it basically is what you're doing is terrible. You feel terrible about it the whole time. And then that's the game. <laughs> like yeah. there isn't, it isn't the thing with Nathan Drake where you're like, Oh, this guy's supposed to be so affable and charming. And, and yet, yet he's murdering he's people, just murdering yeah. people left and right. Whereas in this game, Ellie isn't affable or charming. She's murdering right. people. And like that, she is a video game character. It's like, what right. if a person were a video game character, I think is what plant wrote in his, in his story that you're referring to. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I, I think I think accurate, and we can link that in show notes. I thought that was a really smart piece. And there are even times in the first Last of Us, and there are times in this game too, a little later on, where like you're fighting people that are a little more just they're just kind of henchmen, like they're not. Mm-hmm. But even then, you still get those callouts, the anguished barks, the names, like the people who died. But it's like you at that point internalize that you're killing people. So yeah. I think that it's just it's very much a game about cycles of vengeance and like forgiveness or if that's mm-hmm. possible past a certain point and it reinforces this theme who started it you know there's a war going on and who started right, it who right. broke the ceasefire like yeah. this keeps coming back but i do like in the end i'm like well i'm glad i played that because i am very interested in video games and this as a creation is oh, so yeah. high level and ambitious yeah yeah. And also, like, a lot of my complaints with the story, like, particular things, characters that didn't get enough time, relationships that weren't developed, you know, the complexity of what they're trying to do, clearly it almost killed people to make this game to begin with. So it was yeah. so hard to make it that it's like, you know, I'm I'm forgiving, I guess, of those things where I'm like, well, I've, of course there are going to be some things that didn't work as well as they might have. The fact that a lot of it does work is pretty amazing. Like, I've, I've said this a lot of times, but it's like, I'm glad I played it and I'm glad I'm done playing it. And it's just, regardless of the gameplay part of it, like the ludonarrative dissonance, the the sort of you're killing people, but are you a hero thing, removing that entirely because I don't think that that's an issue in this game, there is still a dissonance. And it's just a narrative dissonance. And it's existed in movies as well for a very long time. And it's just, can you tell a story about violence where violence is the main attraction Mm. and not run into a of like kind of conflict there and it's possible yeah. like there are war movies that are you know anti-war in the end and yeah. because they subjected you to the horror of war in the end you now have a new perspective on like what that means and that's valid but at the same time i i guess i'm not sure i needed a, another story like that like i i come away from it feeling like i got something about these characters like i did come to understand more about Ellie and Joel and Abby and all these characters and like how it all played out. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like it's been in my head in a way that like stories that meant something are, but there's still just this, the fact that like 
most of what you're doing, like the appeal of this game is like the amazingly rendered fighting and combat and killing. And then also the story is about that, that it's like, it's not that they fucked up. It's not that they told the wrong story. It's not a failure. It's done. It's doing pretty dang well, but it's trying to do. It's just that I'm not totally in love with the overall thing. Like, it's just not the kind of story that I seek out, I guess. And that's kind of how I'm feeling about it now. Glad I played it. Glad I'm done playing it. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about, like, particulars more, just because, like I said, any one vector of this story is fascinating and can be kind of teased apart a lot. Yeah. So well well produced, well done, well told for what they wanted to do, but not not for you, but not a story that you... Yeah, and like... It's almost not even that it's not for me. It's just sort of, it's just a, it is a story that I've heard before. It's something that I know already. Mm-hmm. I, I did want, something you wrote in your review, actually, Maddie, um, that I really liked was you were talking about how it presents a view of these different organizations, the Wolves yeah. and Ellie's group and oh, these various groups. I have so groups. much to say about that. Yeah, it presents people in different factions and different groups. And a lot of times those groups are doing awful things and like mm-hmm. the people in them are doing awful things. But it doesn't explore them in a way that I actually feel would be a lot more useful and interesting to me at this moment in time. I agree. Where we're seeing so <laughs> many structural issues and we're learning so much about how we work together. And like yes. actually... It has this Hobbesian view of humanity that I just like yep. don't agree with. I, I don't agree with, and I don't think it's accurate. And that was really what I struggled with. And yeah. I'm sure I'll get into it more on the Beans cast because it is somewhat spoilery. But I just, my issues with the game were more that there were a few scenes where I was like, I actually don't think that these people would do this here. And mm. that started happening to me enough times in a row that I really fell off the game in a big way by the end. I'm glad you mm-hmm. didn't, Kirk, because I think your experience more closely hues with how other people felt about the game, and I hope our listeners appreciate it because I realize that not everybody shares my feelings, and that's completely fine. But it, maybe it just depends on what life experiences you have with people and like what you think about human behavior, which that's an interesting philosophical question that the game is raising and the fact that it inspires so many different reactions from people like me who played it and were like, what? Why would Ellie do this here then? Why? And that other people would play it and be like, oh, this this totally speaks to me is perhaps that means it did succeed on some level because it, it people disagree so much about it and I think that's what they were going for. All right, let's let's table this before I get spoiled because I'm only like halfway <laughs> through the game. My hot All take, right. by the way, is that the game is too long because I just hit what I assume is the a halfway very point. very common take. Yeah, Jason. And I'm already like, God, like I, I need this to be over. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to sneak around and get killed by bloater zombies anymore. Um, <laughs> well, take a break and then come back and then maybe yeah. you'll learn. Yeah, well, I mean, I am taking a break and then coming exactly. back. So that's actually, it works out nicely because exactly. I'm going away for a week. All right, folks, uh, I believe that is it for this week's episode. Yes. So I will say goodbye to you both. Goodbye, Kirk, and goodbye, Maddie. All right, see you both next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edited and mixed the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll head over to MaximumFun.org slash join and consider becoming a member. Doing so helps support us and gets you access to an exclusive Triple Click episode each month. Find us online at TripleClickPodcast.com, on Twitter at TripleClickPod, and send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.